Well, hey there. Welcome to Chase Oaks Church. My name is Greg. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I'm so glad I get to be with you this weekend as we're in this little two-part series called Water and Wine, where we're talking about a couple of really strange things that Christians do. Now, granted, there's a lot of strange things that Christians do. This could have been a really long series, but we're talking about two specific things that Jesus tells us to do that are really kind of odd. The first is uh, dunking people underwater, and we call that baptism. And the second is eating these kind of um, tasteless, flavorless little crackers and drinking uh, wine or juice called communion. And from the outside looking in, these are really strange things. And even if you've been around church for a long time and you're used to communion and baptism, there's still a lot of questions that we could be asking, like, uh, like, what does this symbolism mean? Or is there more going on than meets the eye? And what, what do the different elements mean? And how are they supposed to be um, sort of purpose, like, uh, per, like presently or, or personally uh, meaningful to us? Last week we talked about baptism. Now, Jeff was here, he talked about baptism, and we saw at all of our campuses so many people stepping up and, and deciding to, to be obedient in baptism and, and to do that. And we baptized over 130 people last weekend, which was incredible. Yeah, it was incredible. And each one of those represents uh, just an amazing story of, of God doing incredible things in a, in a person's life. It's, just so, it's so amazing to be a part of that. Well, this weekend, we're going to talk about communion. And if you've been around church for a while, or maybe if you just, you know, you went to church as a kid, you've you've probably um, experienced communion before. Um, Different churches tend to do it differently. For some churches, some churches do it every weekend, um, some not. Some, it's kind kind of a quiet, private thing in the back corner of the auditorium during a worship service. For others, you kind of go up front. While uh, a, a priest or a pastor administers the elements for some, you stand in line, you know, and, and wait your turn to sort of drink out of the exact same cup as everybody else. And uh, even before COVID, that always kind of weirded me out. But but most churches uh, do communion in, in some way. And so we're going to talk about that and why it's so important, because for, for many of us who've experienced it, we can kind of, you know, know what it's about. But for the most part. I think for many of us, there's probably more going on uh, than we even realize. So my goal uh, for our time is that for some of us, there would be a little bit of an aha moment where we kind of connect the dots and some of us can say, oh, wow, okay, now, now I get it. And for others of us, maybe even an oh, wow moment, like this is way more profound than I thought. But for all of us, my hope is that we will leave today just with a greater appreciation and a greater understanding of this thing that's really important that Jesus tells us to do. And to do that, uh, we're going to have to cover a lot. So I hope you're ready for that. I mean, we're going to have to go through some history and we're going to talk about some theology. And specifically, we're going to talk about two Old Testament themes and how they show up in communion in really profound ways and how communion relates not only to our relationship to God, but also our relationship with one another. And so there's a lot. But before we jump in. Um, I want to clarify a term that I just sort of threw out there um, and just make sure that we're all on the same page. And that is, if, if, if you're unfamiliar with the term Old Testament, well, let me explain what that is. Our Bibles are in two big parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament, the 39 books that comprise the Old Testament are the same 39 books that make up the Jewish Bible. 
So uh, it is the, the history, the wisdom, the teaching, and the prophecy of the Jewish people from creation through the minor prophets. And that ended about 400 B.C. The New Testament is about Jesus and the launch of the church. Well, for us as New Testament Christians, looking back at the Old Testament, we just see all kinds of foreshadowing. And we see themes sort of picked up in the Old Testament, introduced in the Old Testament, or prophecies proclaimed in the Old Testament that are then, you know, picked up and fulfilled in the new. And the greatest sort of um, area of convergence in the New Testament for all of these Old Testament threads, the greatest area of convergence is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're, you know, we're just going to pick at two of those threads, but there's all kinds that we could, that we could be referring to. But as we talk about communion, I do think it's important or it's, it's at least helpful to have, to have a working knowledge of what the Passover is. We're going to talk about that and to also understand what the new covenant is. And so if those terms are new to you, I'm glad you're here this weekend. I'm glad you're joining us because I think you're going to like or appreciate learning about these things because it does make communion a little bit more profound. And so we're going to start with the Passover. Now, to understand Passover, we're going to have to go back. Like we're going to have to go way, way back, like about 1,500 years before Jesus. At that time, the Israelites, the people, the, the Israelites were um, enslaved in Egypt, and they were in bondage there, and they had been there for about 400 years. And then Moses uh, shows up as God's appointed leader to lead them out of bondage and into a new land that God had promised to them, a land of promise, where they could experience blessings and, and those types of things. But, you know, but Pharaoh, the leader of the Egyptians, um, didn't want to let the, the Israelites go. Shocker. So God, sends, um, or, so God sends plague after plague after plague to break Pharaoh's will so that he will release the Israelites and let them go. Well, the last one of those plagues is, a, is one called the angel of death. And on that particular plague, on, um, on, a, on an appointed night, the angel would visit every household in the country and kill the firstborn in every household, which is just horrendous. But to his own people, uh, to the Israelites, to his chosen people, he told them, you will be spared if you do this thing. You need to take a lamb and you need to kill it and you need to prepare a meal with it because they were going to be traveling the next day and they were going to need it. But I want you to take the blood, he said, and paint it on the doorframe of your home. And when the angel comes, it will see the blood and it will pass over your home and spare your family. And that's where the, that's where the name comes from. Well, that, um, that plague does break Pharaoh's will and he sends them off and he lets them go. And the moment they start walking, they are now free people. They were spared from death and they were rescued from bondage and slavery through the blood of a lamb that was slain for them. Well, as they're traveling and they're kind of in the wilderness on the way to the promised land, um, God tells his people that I want you to set up a a remembrance, a, a commemoration of what I just did for you. And that became the Passover meal or the Passover celebration. And part of that celebration was the annual Passover meal. And at that meal, 
Every item on the table, every, every bit of food, every different thing that was on the table represented something different. And they were, represented something that they were supposed to remember. And so they had, it was a scripted meal. And so they would say, you know, with this bread, we remember this. And with these bitter herbs, we remember this. And with this lamb, we remember this. And with this cup, we remember this. And there were all of these different aspects of them, the, the bitterness of them being in slavery and all that God did to, to set them free and the, and the lamb that was slain and the blood that they sort of trusted under that, that let them go. And then God's provision in the wilderness and God taking them to Mount Sinai and, and, and establishing a covenant, the Mosaic covenant and the law and establishing them as as a nation, like all of these things, they would just sort of remember in these different aspects of the meal. And the Jewish community still does this. If you've ever had a a Seder supper, um, you've experienced it. Now, at the time when when, when God commanded them to set up this remembrance, he did so Because they were moving into a brand new land that they had never experienced before. And they were going to experience all kinds of things that they had never experienced before. And God knew how prone they are to be distracted or to be overwhelmed. And how prone they are to to forget. And he says, I don't want you to forget. So every year I want you to go back to this meal. And I want you to remember my faithfulness. I want you to remember my covenant promise. I want you to remember my power to rescue you from bondage. So this meal, this Passover meal, this celebration became one of three of the most prominent celebrations on the Jewish calendar. So much so that no matter where you lived, you would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover together. Now, in the time of Jesus, the Passover was kind of a bittersweet thing. Because in the time of Jesus, Israel was occupied by Rome. And so you can imagine every year at the Passover, they would gather together, they'd go to Jerusalem for this big celebration, and they would gather together to remember God's liberating power in the past while they waited and waited and waited and waited for God's liberating power in the present. When would God do for them what he had done for them in the past? When would God free them from Roman oppression? That was their question. Now, I give all of that backstory about the Passover because it is significant that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem for the last time at the end of his ministry, when he rode into Jerusalem for the last time, knowing that he was going to be killed there, It is significant that he did so at the time of the Passover when everyone else was going into Jerusalem. Now, he alone knew what awaited him there. But among the crowds coming, there was wide speculation and wonder that he might actually be the one to free them from Rome. I mean, he had been traveling around teaching and um, healing and and doing miracles for three years and gathering really large crowds. He was really popular. And above that, I mean, just before this, he had, uh, he had raised from the dead some guy named Lazarus in Bethany right outside of Jerusalem. Everybody was talking about him. 
And so when word got out that, that Jesus was getting ready to come into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, people stream out of the city and they lay their cloaks down on the road and they wave palm branches and they say, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, which is an astonishing thing for them to say. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. There was a king ruling over them. His name was Herod, and he was appointed by Rome. And they look at Jesus, and they say, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They saw Jesus as kind of a Moses-type figure, or even a King David-type figure, someone who would come in and throw the Romans off of their backs, someone who would come in and throw all the foreigners out, who would establish them as a, as a unique and distinct nation again and the land of promise and they could experience all of this freedom. They thought Jesus was riding into the city to do something for their country. And Jesus knew that he was riding into the city to do something for you and to do something for the whole world. Just a few days after that, and just a few hours before Jesus would be betrayed by one of his disciples and arrested and tried and then executed, which all happened in like very quick order, just a few hours before that, Jesus calls his disciples together and they find a quiet room so that they can, they can observe and celebrate their Passover meal together. And remember, this is a scripted meal. All of these men would have grown up hearing from their fathers, hearing from their grandfathers, all the remembrances, how everything in this meal reminded them of God's saving power as he took Israel from out of Egypt and saved them from bondage and all of those types of things. But Jesus in this meal would do something that was so confusing to them that they would not understand it until after all of these things had taken place. So let's read. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Now, this is already super weird because he's already gone off script, like this whole, This is my body thing. But he continues on, and it gets even weirder when he says, do this in remembrance of. And at this point, they could have stopped him and said, okay, we're on script now. I understand where you are because we know what this is in remembrance of. We've been hearing this from our father and from our, from our grandfathers as we've talked about this meal. This is the Passover meal, and we're remembering God's saving power as he took us from bondage out of Egypt and, 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 the, and the blood of the lamb and the, you know, as we were rescued from that. And then we went into the wilderness and he sustained us there with manna and like and he took us to sinai and 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 gave us the 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 law the mosaic covenant established us as a nation like all of these things we know this we've been experiencing this our whole lives and jesus says yeah that that's all changing from now on whenever you do this you'll do this in remembrance of me This is scandalous, what Jesus is saying. This is crazy talk. I mean, I can just imagine the disciples thinking, okay, Jesus, I mean, you've said some things. 
in the past. You know, you've, you've made people mad. You've kind of gotten us in trouble. But honestly, I think you've gone a little too far here. Like, you, you, can't, you can't mess with Passover. You can't change the Passover. Jesus, you can't make Passover all about you. Who do you think you are? What's the matter with you? Imagine this. Uh, my birthday is three days after Christmas, December 28th. Write that down. Greg's birthday, <laughs> December 28th. Now imagine uh, me coming in right after Thanksgiving and saying, you know, usually in the month of December, we sing a lot of great songs and we uh, decorate and we have parties and we buy gifts for one another and we do all of these things to celebrate the birth of Jesus. But, but this year, starting this year and from here on out, we're going to do all of those same things, but we're going to do it for me. From here on out, starting this year, and from here on out, Christmas is going to be all about me. How's that sound? Sounds good to me. That had to have been what he sounded like. But this is what Jesus is communicating. There will continue to be a celebration of God's faithfulness. There will continue to be a commemoration of 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 God's saving power and his ability to rescue from bondage. And there will be a remembrance, a meal of a remembrance of a sacrifice that is made whose blood can actually cover and save people and set them free. But it will no longer be commemorating the events of the days of Moses. It's going to be, it's going to be commemorating the, the events that are about to go down here in just a few hours. It's going to be because of me. He's saying, man, I am the Passover lamb. But not just for Israel, for the entire world. The most profound event in Israel's history, the Exodus, and the most meaningful celebration, the most profound, the most important celebration commemorating that event, the Passover, was a foreshadow looking forward to Jesus, that someday he would, and what he would do, not just for the nation of Israel, but for the entire world. But then the meal continues. And we read this. After supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is, and they could have cut him off there again. Say, okay, okay. All right. We know what the cup is. We're back on script. This is the blood, right? This is the blood that, you know, we, we, they painted over the doorpost and it was through the blood that, that we were, that we were rescued and we were set free and then we, and then we were able to go to Mount Sinai and we heard from you and you spoke to us and you gave us the Mosaic Covenant, the, the, the law which established us as a nation. Like, we know this cup. It's a 1500 year old script. And Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So for those disciples, what Jesus is doing is he's setting up a new remembrance, a new meal, and he is linking it to something that, that they and all of the Old Testament saints would have looked back towards, which is the Passover. He, he was also linking it to something that they all would have been looking forward to, which is the new covenant. So we need to talk about what the new covenant is. The word covenant in the Bible means 
roughly what it means today. It's a contract. And there were different types of covenants in the ancient world. There were different types of covenants in the Bible. For instance, way back in in Genesis, God makes a covenant with Abraham, and he says that your descendants will become a great nation, and from that nation there will be a blessing to the entire world. That that was a unilateral covenant. It was a one-way covenant. God made a promise, and then God does all of the work to fulfill that promise. Now, in contrast... The, the covenant that God made with the nation when, at the time of Moses, when after, he, after God brings them out of Egypt at, at Mount Sinai, that was a different type of covenant. That, that covenant's called the Mosaic Covenant or it's called the Law. That was a bilateral covenant. It was a two-way covenant. God was saying, okay, there are some rules here and there are some laws and you're going to have to obey these laws. You have to live a certain way if you're going to experience a certain many of these blessings that I am offering to you. It was a if then contract. God is saying, if you do, then I will. If you don't, then I won't. If you would like to read that that law, that Old Testament law that that was given to Moses, you can find it in the latter part of the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. That is the part of the Bible that kind of ruins your resolution to read through the Bible, you know, in a year. It is tough sledding. It was a lot. It's a lot to read. It was a lot for them to carry, a lot for them to sort through. And so, um, eventually, the, the nation would look forward to something that their prophets began talking about, that someday God was going to set up a new kind of contract. Jeremiah just called it simply the new covenant. So about 600 years before Jesus, Jeremiah writes this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sin no more. This covenant would not be like the covenant that God made, you know, when Moses came down from the mountain and he had the Ten Commandments and then, and then God dictates all of these terms and all of these rules and the, the ceremonial law and the priesthood and all the sacrifices that people had to make. The, the law was this constant reminder that there was a barrier between them and God. They didn't have easy access to God. They couldn't even approach God without a priest making a sacrifice for them. And they had, to, they had all of these do's and don'ts and all of these kind of things. And this, but then God says, this new covenant's not going to be like that. There's not going to be a hierarchy anymore. They're all going to know me from the least to the greatest. And there's no longer going to be a law written on stone. You know, all of these rules. I'm gonna, it's going to be, a, a, it's gonna be a, a covenant of conscience. And I'm going to write it on their hearts and on their minds. And I'm going to have a relationship with individuals. I'm going to interact with people at a personal and an intimate way. The whole notion that individuals could have a personal relationship with God without having to go to a priest to make sacrifices for you. Or the whole notion that we could, as, as the writer to the Hebrews in the New Testament would say, that we could approach the throne of grace in boldness and with confidence 
That was just unheard of in the Old Testament. But now Jesus could say, you know, that because of me and because of what I am doing for you, if if you go to the Father in my name, you could speak as boldly as I do. Which is why, by the way, we end our prayers oftentimes with, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Because access to a holy God is a big deal. That's part of the new covenant blessing. And it's only made possible through Jesus Christ. Without Jesus, there is an impenetrable wall between us and God. The, the, the type of Old Testament saints longed for the type of access to God that you and I take for granted in the new covenant. So what have we learned so far? We've learned that Jesus is the Passover lamb. That through his blood rescue, salvation, uh, rescue from bondage and freedom is made, but not just for Israel, but for the entire world. And through his sacrifice, a new way of interacting with God was instituted. And that old way, the, the, the way that th- through Moses and the law and all of those rules, all of that was going away. This thing that, that Old Testament saints looked forward to and longed for, and for personal interaction with God, that they could know him and be known by him, like all of those things, that that, that, that the thing that they longed for, it was happening right then. And Jesus is saying, it's going to happen because of me. Man, that's a lot. That's a lot to think about when we take communion. You know, hope and life and forgiveness and freedom from bondage and access to God like, like that, that is so just sort of unheard of. But that is what communion is because that is what Jesus did for us on the cross. Now, because, um, it, you know, b- because communion is the picture of the most distinctive thing in the Christian faith, the death of Jesus Christ for us, it quickly became, in the New Testament church, um, it quickly became a really important part of their worship gatherings. And you see this in the, in the letters of the New Testament. And when a group of people, when followers of Jesus all together take communion together, it then becomes a really poignant picture that doesn't just have sort of vertical implications. It has horizontal implications because we all gather around the same table and we all have equal need. And we all are passionately loved by God, but we are all desperate in our, you know, and undeserving of his grace. We're all we're all in the same boat. And we have a common Savior, and we take a, a common meal to express our common uh, need for what Jesus has done for us. And so communion becomes this picture of the great unifying and equalizing effect of God's grace. And so it's not just about, so communion isn't just about us and God. It's about us and each other. So Paul would tell us in, in Ephesians chapter 2 that what Jesus did for us on the cross breaks down the barrier of the dividing wall between us and God and between us and each other. He would tell us in Galatians 3 that those who are in Christ, there is neither rich nor poor or male or female or slave or free. You're just one in Christ. Everybody's equal here. All those divisions that matter out there, they don't matter in here because we are all equally loved by God and equally needy for his grace. There's no one better than anybody else. 
So when we take communion, it is a great time for us to reflect on our relationship with God and to look around the room or to think about people taking communion at the same time in other places or whatever and just sort of recognize that none of us are any better than anybody else. As recipients of God's grace, Christians should be the last people on the planet to be prideful, to be judgmental, to be self-righteous. But when we do, it's, because we've, it's usually because we've forgotten something that God wants us to remember. And to help us remember, he gives us communion. It's not just a bunch of abstract concepts where he says, hey, here, remember this. Think about this. Remember this. He says, no, I want you to eat it. It's a physical thing. I love that it's physical. I love that I get to hold it in my hand. I love that when I have the opportunity to take it you know, in the same room with other people, I can see them taking it too and expressing their faith and their love and their devotion at the same time to the same Savior. It's, just a, it's this poignant picture. I love that there's a point in time that, that I sort of choose to partake. That it's not just remembering some abstract thing. I, I say... I kind of think, okay, now is the moment. And it becomes part of me, and I have to chew it up and swallow it. And when, when, when God takes these profound truths and he, and he connects it to my senses like this, and to my memory like this, he's sinking these truths deeper into my understanding because he knows how prone I am to forget. And when I say forget, I don't mean like, Forget, forget. Like, I still know it. But there's like a difference, isn't there, between like knowing it and like really knowing it? Like, it's sort of like my head remembers, but my heart forgets. Like, I could pass the test. Like, I've been a pastor for a long time. Like, I know the theology here. I, I, it's like I haven't completely forgotten. But I will go long periods of time when it's just not part of my life at all. It's making zero impact in my life. And it's... It's as if my heart has forgotten. And I can get wrapped up and sidetracked by anything and everything and forget that, oh, there's bigger things going on than just my daily stresses and worry. Or I can, as strange as it might sound, like kind of forget what Jesus has done for me, even though I know I kind of, it's not part of my thought process, it's not part of my life. I kind of forget what Jesus has done for me, and it tends to take away my joy. When I do that, or I can forget that no one is any better than anyone else in this family. We are all equally loved and equally undeserving. And when I forget, I, I can, I can like look down my nose at people that I disagree with, or I just lose my sense of gratitude that I'm just, I'm just a recipient of grace. And I'm just glad I have a seat at the table. I can forget sometimes that the new covenant is not like the old one. And when I forget, you know, when I'm not in a good place, I imagine God saying, you know what, I'll love you and bless you if you obey, but I'm not going to do it if you don't. I'm a forgetful person. We are a forgetful people. And so God says, I want you to go back to the meal. And I want you to consider what this really means. And I want you to participate in it regularly. 
And it's a good time to assess our relationship with God. It's a good time to assess our relationship with one another. It's a good time to just be overwhelmed yet again with God's amazing grace in our lives. It's a good time to just remember and say, oh, yeah, these are the most important things. Oh, yeah, Jesus has already done everything. I don't have to earn anything at all. I can just live a life of gratitude now and joy. Oh, yeah, there's no second-class citizens in the people of God. We are all equally loved. Oh, yeah, now I remember. Now I remember. So in just a moment, we're going to take communion together. And we're going to remember that because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, he offers to us forgiveness of sins, salvation, rescue from the bondage of sin, access to God, and adoption into a family where we are all equal. All truly good and perfect gifts come from him. And we are just recipients of his grace. And so when we take communion, we get to remember that again. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, what we are about to do You have instituted for us, to us, for a reason. Because we are prone to forget. We're prone to get sidetracked and distracted. We're prone to lose sight of the things that are truly important. And we lose our joy and we lose our gratitude. And and so many things just go off track and you call us back to this meal. And so I pray that you will help us in these next few moments, to remember well, to be humbled again by your love and your grace. And then as we partake and then as we worship, Father, I pray that you will help us to worship well and express our love and our gratitude to you. Father, we thank you for who you are, for all that you've done. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.